Section 38 of The Letters of Mark Twain Complete. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James K. White. The Letters of Mark Twain Complete by Mark Twain. Volume 4, Chapter 36. Letters, 1897. London, Switzerland, Vienna. Mark Twain worked steadily on his book that sad winter, and managed to keep the gloom out of his chapters, though it is noticeable that following the equator is more serious than his other books of travel. He wrote few letters, and these only to his three closest friends, Howells, Twitchell, and Rogers. In the letter to Twitchell, which follows, there is mention of two unfinished manuscripts which he expects to resume. One of these was a dream story, enthusiastically begun, but perhaps with insufficient plot to carry it through, for it never reached conclusion. He had already tried it in one or two forms and would begin it again presently. The identity of the other tale is uncertain. To Reverend J. H. Twitcher in Hartford, London, January 19, 97 dear joe do i want you to write to me indeed i do i do not want most people to write but i do want you to do it the others break my heart but you will not you have a something divine in you that is not in other men you have the touch that heals not lacerates and you know the secret places of our hearts you know our life the outside of it as the others do and the inside of it which they do not you have seen our whole voyage you have seen us go to sea a cloud of sail and the flag at the peak and you see us now chartless adrift derelicts battered waterlogged our sails a ruck of rags our pride gone for it is gone and there is nothing in its place. The vanity of life was all we had, and there is no more vanity left in us. We are even ashamed of that we had, ashamed that we trusted the promises of life and built it high to come to this. I did know that Susie was part of us. I did not know that she could go away. I did not know that she could go away and take our lives with her yet leave our dull bodies behind. And I did not know what she was. To me she was but treasure in the bank, the amount known, the need to look at it daily, handle it, weigh it, count it, realize it, not necessary. And now that I would do it, it is too late. They tell me it is not there, has vanished away in a night. The bank is broken my fortune is gone i am a pauper how am i to comprehend this how am i to have it why am i robbed and who is benefited ah well susie died at home she had that privilege her dying eyes rested upon nothing that was strange to them but only upon things which they had known and loved always and which had made her young years glad. 
and she had you and sue and katie and john and ellen this was happy fortune i am thankful that it was vouchsafed to her if she had died in another house well i think i could not have borne that to us our house was not unsentient matter it had a heart and a soul and eyes to see us with and approvals and solicitudes and deep sympathies it was of us and we were in its confidence and lived in its grace and in the peace of its benediction we never came home from an absence that its face did not light up and speak out its eloquent welcome and we could not enter it unmoved and could we now oh now in spirit we should enter it unshod i am trying to add to the assets which you estimate so generously no i'm not the thought is not in my mind my purpose is other i am working but it is for the sake of the work the surcease of sorrow that is found there i work all the days and trouble vanishes away when i use that magic this book will not long stand between it and me now but that is no matter i have many unwritten books to fly to for my preservation the interval between the finishing of this one and the beginning of the next will not be more than an hour at most continuances i mean for two of them are already well along in fact have reached exactly the same stage in their journey nineteen thousand words each the present one will contain a hundred eighty thousand words a hundred thirty thousand are done i am well protected but livy she has nothing in the world to turn to nothing but housekeeping and doing things for the children and me she does not see people and cannot books have lost their interest for her. she sits solitary and all the day and all the days wonders how it all happened and why we others were always busy with our affairs but susie was her comrade had to be driven from her loving persecutions sometimes at one in the morning to livy the persecutions were welcome it was heaven to her to be plagued like that but it is ended now livy stands so in need of help and none among us all could help her like you some day you and i will walk again joe and talk i hope so we could have such talks we are all grateful to you in harmony how grateful it is not given to us to say in words we pay as we can in love and in this coin practicing no economy good-bye dear old joe mark the letters to mr rogers were for the most part on matters of business but in one of them he said i am going to write with all my might on this book and follow it up with others as fast as i can in the hope that within three years i can clear out the stuff that is in me waiting to be written and that i shall then die in the promptest kind of a way 
and no fooling around. And in one he wrote, You are the best friend ever a man had, and the surest. To W. D. Howells in New York, London, February 23, 97. Dear Howells, I find your generous article in the weekly, and I want to thank you for its splendid praises, so daringly uttered and so warmly. The words stir the dead heart of me, and throw a glow of color into a life which sometimes seems to have grown wholly wan. I don't mean that I am miserable. No. Worse than that. Indifferent indifferent to nearly everything but work i like that i enjoy it and stick to it i do it without purpose and without ambition merely for the love of it this mood will pass some day there is history for it but it cannot pass until my wife comes up out of the submergence she was always so quick to recover herself before but now there is no rebound, and we are dead people who go through the motions of life. Indeed, I am a mud image, and it will puzzle me to know what it is in me that writes, and has comedy fancies, and finds pleasure in phrasing them. It is a law of our nature, of course, or it wouldn't happen. The thing in me forgets the presence of the mud image, and goes its own way wholly unconscious of it and apparently of no kinship with it i have finished my book but i go on as if the end were indefinitely away as indeed it is there is no hurry at any rate there is no limit jean's spirits are good clara's are rising they have youth the only thing that was worth giving to the race these are sardonic times look at greece and that whole shabby muddle but i am not sorry to be alive and privileged to look on if i were not a hermit i would go to the house every day and see those people scuffle over it and blether about the brotherhood of the human race this has been a bitter year for english pride and i don't like to see england humbled that is not too much we are sprung from her loins, and it hurts me. I am for republics, and she is the only comrade we've got in that. We can't count France, and there is hardly enough of Switzerland to count. Beneath the governing crust, England is sound-hearted, and sincere, too, and nearly straight. But I am appalled to notice that the wide extension of the surface has damaged her manners and made her rather Americanly uncourteous on the lower levels. Won't you give our love to the houses, all in particular? Sincerely yours, S. L. Clemens The travel book did not finish easily, and more than once when he thought it completed, he found it necessary to cut and add and change. The final chapters were not sent to the printer until the middle of May, and in a letter to Mr. Rogers he commented, A successful book is not made of what is in it, but what is left out of it. 
Clemens was, at the time, contemplating a uniform edition of his books, and in one of his letters to Mr. Rogers on the matter, he wrote whimsically, Now, I was proposing to make a thousand sets at a hundred dollars a set, and do the whole canvassing myself. I would load up every important jail and saloon in America with deluxe editions of my books. But Mrs. Clemens and the children object to this. I do not know why. And, in a moment of depression, You see, the lightning refuses to strike me. There is where the defect is. We have to do our own striking as Barney Barnato did. But nobody ever gets the courage until he goes crazy. They went to Switzerland for the summer to the village of Vegas on Lake Lucerne. The charmingest place we ever lived in, he declared, for repose and restfulness and superb scenery. It was here that he began work on a new story of Tom and Huck, and at least upon one other manuscript. From a brief note to Mr. Rogers we learn something of his employments and economies. To Henry H. Rogers in New York, Lucerne, August the something or other, 1897. Dear Mr. Rogers, I am writing a novel, and am getting along very well with it. I believe that this place, Vegas, half an hour from Lucerne, is the loveliest in the world, and the most satisfactory. We have a small house on the hillside, all to ourselves, and our meals are served in it from the inn below on the lake shore. Six francs a day per head, house and food included. The scenery is beyond comparison beautiful. We have a rowboat and some bicycles, and good roads and no visitors. Nobody knows we are here and Sunday in heaven is noisy compared to this quietness. Sincerely yours, S.L.C. To Rev. J. H. Twitchell in Hartford, Lucerne, August 22, 97. Dear Joe, Livy made a noble find on the Lucerne boat the other day on one of her shopping trips, George Williamson Smith. Did I tell you about it? We had a lovely time with him, and such intellectual refreshment as we had not tasted in many a month. And the other night we had a detachment of the Jubilee Singers, six. I had known one of them in London twenty-four years ago. Three of the six were born in slavery, the others were children of slaves. How charming they were, in spirit, manner, language, pronunciation, enunciation, grammar, phrasing, matter, carriage, clothes, in every detail that goes to make the real lady and gentleman, and welcome guest. We went down to the village hotel and bought our tickets and entered the beer hall where a crowd of German and Swiss men and women sat grouped at round tables with their beer mugs in front of them, self-contained and unimpressionable-looking people, an indifferent and unposted and disheartened audience, and up at the far end of the room sat the jubilees in a row. The singers got up and stood. The talking and glass jingling went on. 
then rose and swelled out above those common earthly sounds one of those rich chords the secret of whose make only the jubilees possess and a spell fell upon that house it was fine to see the faces light up with the pleased wonder and surprise of it no one was indifferent any more and when the singers finished the camp was theirs it was a triumph it reminded me of lancelot riding in sir kay's armor and astonishing complacent knights who thought they had struck a soft thing the jubilees sang a lot of pieces arduous and painstaking cultivation has not diminished or artificialized their music but on the contrary to my surprise has mightily reinforced its eloquence and beauty away back in the beginning to my mind their music made all other vocal music cheap and that early notion is emphasized now it is utterly beautiful to me and it moves me infinitely more than any other music can i think that in the jubilees and their songs america has produced the perfectest flower of the ages and i wish it were a foreign product so that she would worship it and lavish money on it and go properly crazy over it now these countries are different they would do all that if it were native it is true they praise god but that is merely a formality and nothing in it they open out their whole hearts to no foreigner the musical critics of the german press praise the jubilees with great enthusiasm acquired technique etc included one of the jubilee men is a son of general joe johnson and was educated by him after the war the party came up to the house and we had a pleasant time this is paradise here but of course we have got to leave it by and by the eighteenth of august footnote the anniversary of susie clemens death end of footnote has come and gone joe and we still seem to live with love from us all mark clemens declared he would as soon spend his life in vegas as anywhere else in the geography but october found them in vienna for the winter at the hotel metropole the austrian capital was just then in a political turmoil the character of which is hinted in the following to rev j h twitcher in hartford hotel metropole vienna october twenty three ninety seven dear joe we are gradually getting settled down and wanted vienna is not a cheap place to live in but i have made one small arrangement which has a distinctly economical aspect the vice-consul made the contract for me yesterday to wit a barber is to come every morning eight thirty and shave me and keep my hair trimmed for two dollars and fifty cents a month i used to pay a dollar fifty per shave in our house in hartford does it suggest to you reflections when you reflect that this is the most important event which has happened to me in ten days unless i count in my handing a cabman over to the police day before yesterday with the proper formalities and promise to appear in court when his case comes up 
If I had time to run around and talk, I would do it, for there is much politics a-going, and it would be interesting if a body could get the hang of it. It is Christian and Jew by the horns, the advantage with the superior man, as usual, the superior man being the Jew every time, and in all countries. Land, Joe, what chance would the Christian have in a country where there were three Jews to ten Christians? Oh, not the shade of a shadow of a chance. The difference between the brain of the average Christian and that of the average Jew, certainly in Europe, is about the difference between a tadpole's and an archbishop's. It's a marvelous race, by long odds the most marvelous that the world has produced, I suppose. And there's more politics. The clash between Czech and Austrian. I wish I could understand these quarrels, but of course I can't. With the abounding love of us all, Mark. In following the equator, there was used an amusing picture showing Mark Twain on his trip around the world. It was a trick photograph made from a picture of Mark Twain taken in a steamer chair, cut out and combined with a dilapidated negro cart drawn by a horse and an ox. In it, Clemens appears to be sitting luxuriously in the end of the disreputable cart. His companions are two Negroes. To the creator of this ingenious effect, Mark Twain sent a characteristic acknowledgment. To T.S. Frisbee, Vienna, October 25, 97. Mr. T.S. Frisbee, Dear Sir, The picture has reached me, and has moved me deeply. That was a steady, sympathetic, and honorable team, and although it was not swift and not showy, it pulled me around the globe successfully, and always attracted its proper share of attention, even in the midst of the most costly and fashionable turnouts. Princes and dukes and other experts were always enthused by the harness and could hardly keep from trying to buy it. The barouche does not look as fine now as it did earlier, but that was before the earthquake. The portraits of myself and uncle and nephew are very good indeed, and your impressionist reproduction of the palace of the Governor-General of India is accurate and full of tender feeling. I consider that this picture is much more than a work of art. How much more, one cannot say with exactness, but I should think two-thirds more. Very truly yours, Mark Twain. Following the Equator was issued by subscription through Mark Twain's old publishers, The Blisses of Hartford. The sale of it was large, not only on account of the value of the book itself, but also because of the sympathy of the American people with Mark Twain's brave struggle to pay his debts. When the newspapers began to print exaggerated stories of the vast profits that were piling up, Bliss became worried, for he thought it would modify the sympathy. He cabled Clemens for a denial, with the following result. To Frank E. Bliss in Hartford, Vienna, November 4, 1897. Dear Bliss, Your cablegram informing me that a report is in circulation which purports to come from me and which says I have recently made eighty-two thousand dollars and paid all my debts 
has just reached me, and I have cabled back my regret to you that it is not true. I wrote a letter, a private letter, a short time ago, in which I expressed the belief that I should be out of debt within the next twelve months. If you make as much as usual for me out of the book, that belief will crystallize into a fact, and I shall be wholly out of debt. I am encoring you now. It is out of that moderate letter that the $82,000 mare's nest has developed. But why do you worry about the various reports? They do not worry me. They are not unfriendly, and I don't see how they can do any harm. Be patient. You have but a little while to wait. The possible reports are nearly all in. It has been reported that I was seriously ill. It was another man. Dying. It was another man. Dead. The other man again. It has been reported that I have received a legacy. It was another man. That I am out of debt. It was another man. And now comes this $82,000. Still another man. It has been reported that I am writing books for publication. I am not doing anything of the kind. It would surprise and gratify me if I should be able to get another book ready for the press within the next three years. You can see yourself that there isn't anything more to be reported. Invention is exhausted. Therefore, don't worry, Bliss. The long night is breaking. As far as I can see, nothing remains to be reported, except that I have become a foreigner. When you hear it, don't you believe it, and don't take the trouble to deny it. Merely just raise the American flag on our house in Hartford, and let it talk. Truly yours, Mark Twain. P.S. This is not a private letter. I am getting tired of private letters. To Rev. J. H. Twitcher in Hartford, Vienna, Hotel Metropole, November 1997. Dear Joe, Above is our private and permanent address for the winter. You needn't send letters by London. I am very much obliged for Forrest's Austro-Hungarian articles. I have just finished reading the first one and in it I find that his opinion and Vienna's are the same upon a point which was puzzling me, the paucity, no, the absence, of Austrian celebrities. He and Vienna both say the country cannot afford to allow great names to grow up, that the whole safety and prosperity of the empire depends upon keeping things quiet, can't afford to have geniuses springing up and developing ideas and stirring the public soul. I am assured that every time a man finds himself blooming into fame, they just softly snake him down and relegate him to a wholesome obscurity. It is curious and interesting. Three days ago, the New York World sent and asked a friend of mine, correspondent of a London daily, 
to get some Christmas greetings from the celebrities of the Empire. She spoke of this. Two or three bright Austrians were present. They said, There are none who are known all over the world, none who have achieved fame, none who can point to their work and say it is known far and wide in the earth. There are no names. Kosuth, known because he had a father, and Lecker, who made the twelve-hour speech. Two names, nothing more. Every other country in the world, perhaps, has a giant or two whose heads are away up and can be seen. But ours, we've got the material, have always had it, but we have to suppress it. We can't afford to let it develop. Our political salvation depends upon tranquility. Always has. Poor Livy. She is laid up with rheumatism, but she is getting along now. We have a good doctor, and he says she will be out of bed in a couple of days, but must stay in the house a week or ten. Clara is working faithfully at her music, Jean at her usual studies, and we all send love. Mark. Mention has already been made of the political excitement in Vienna. The trouble between the Hungarian and German legislative bodies presently became violent. Clemens found himself intensely interested, and was present in one of the galleries when it was cleared by the police. All sorts of stories were circulated as to what happened to him, one of which was cabled to America. A letter to Twitchell sets forth what really happened. To Rev. J. H. Twitchell in Hartford, Hotel Metropole, Vienna, December 10, 97. Dear Joe, Pond sends me a Cleveland paper with a cablegram from here in it, which says that when the police invaded the Parliament and expelled the eleven members, I waved my handkerchief and shouted, Hawk de Deutschen, and got hustled out. Oh, dear, what a pity it is that one's adventures never happen. When the ordiner, sergeant-at-arms, came up to our gallery and was hurrying the people out, a friend tried to get leave for me to stay by saying, But this gentleman is a foreigner. You don't need to turn him out. He won't do any harm. Oh, I know him very well. I recognize him by his pictures, and I should be very glad to let him stay. But I haven't any choice, because of the strictness of the orders. And so we all went out, and no one was hustled. Below, I ran across the London Times correspondent, and he showed me the way into the first gallery, and I lost none of the show. The first gallery had not misbehaved and was not disturbed. We cannot persuade Livy to go out in society yet, but all the lovely people come to see her, and Clara and I go to dinner parties, and around here and there, and we all have a most hospitable good time. Jean's woodcarving flourishes, and her other studies. Goodbye, Joe, and we all love all of you. Mark. Clemens made an article of the Austrian Troubles, one of the best things he ever wrote, and certainly one of the clearest elucidations of the Austro-Hungarian confusions. It was published in Harper's Magazine and is now included in his complete works. 
Thus far, none of the Webster Company debts had been paid, at least none of importance. The money had been accumulating in Mr. Rogers' hands, but Clemens was beginning to be depressed by the heavy burden. He wrote asking for relief. Fragment of a letter to H. H. Rogers in New York. Dear Mr. Rogers, I throw up the sponge. I pull down the flag. Let us begin on the debts. I cannot bear the weight any longer. It totally unfits me for work. I have lost three entire months now. In that time I have begun twenty magazine articles and books and flung every one of them aside in turn. The debts interfered every time and took the spirit out of any work. And yet I have worked like a bond slave and wasted no time and spared no effort. Rogers wrote, proposing a plan for beginning immediately upon the debts. Clemens replied enthusiastically, and during the next few weeks wrote every few days, expressing his delight in liquidation. Extracts from Letters to H. H. Rogers in New York We all delighted with your plan. Only don't leave B. out. Apparently that claim has been inherited by some women daughters no doubt we don't want to see them lose anything b is an ass and disgruntled but i don't care for that i am responsible for the money and must do the best i can to pay it i am writing hard writing for the creditors december twenty nine land we are glad to see those debts diminishing for the first time in my life I am getting more pleasure out of paying money out than pulling it in. January 2 Since we have begun to pay off the debts, I have abundant peace of mind again, no sense of burden. Work has become a pleasure again. It is not labor any longer. March 7 Mrs. Clemens has been reading the creditor's letters over and over again, and thanks you deeply for sending them, and says it is the only really happy day she has had since Susie died. End of section 38. Recording by James K. White, Chula Vista.